Welcome to Call of Your Soul. Welcome to Call of Your Soul, the podcast built by two intuitive and empathic people dedicated to the service of others. Our work is to help each person align all layers of their being, whether it's physical, mental, spiritual, or emotional. And our work is really working for more of a peaceful and engaging life. And a main function of that is to cultivate the awareness of the subtler aspects of our world and cultivating intuitive and empathic skills that really help align us to the knowledge in order to seek out our divine truth. And therefore, we can gain more understanding and obtain more wisdom to have more choices in our life. This is Dan Ellis, and alongside me is my co-host, Amy Bear Piper. Hi, everyone. This is Amy Bear. Today's focus is to reveal a bit about co-host Dan and me, about our personal spiritual journey, and what we'll be bringing to the podcast table for you guys. So before we begin, we'll take a moment to get centered and to get settled and prepare ourselves to receive. So if you're in a place to do so, I invite you to close your eyes. Bring your awareness to the breath and just feel the natural cadence and rhythm that your breath takes. Bringing awareness to all the senses. And then relaxing the low belly. Exhale all the air out from the body. Take a deep breath in. Hold for a moment. And exhale, release. Thanks, Dan. So let me offer a brief description of the delightful Dan and all the super qualifications that he brings to us here. Dan is a Reiki master and has been teaching yoga, meditation, and Tai Chi in Atlanta, Georgia since 2018. His main focus is attuning to the healing components of each practice. He leads his clients to use the body as a way into the energy field and subtle senses. Dan's goal as a teacher is to reestablish the bond between the body, brain, and energy field and empower each person to maintain that alignment. Using an integrative approach, he invites harmony across the layers of each person's being. Dan believes this is the essence of yoga's definition, to yoke or to bring together. Hmm. Thank you, Amy. So now a little bit about Amy, who I've known since 2019 and who's a wonderful person. Amy Bear Piper has been in private practice for 27 years in spiritual coaching, healing, and training. Amy holds a master's degree in transpersonal psychology from the University of West Georgia and is a board-certified coach through the nationally recognized CCE and through the HeartMath Institute. She is also ordained as a multi-faith minister and has studied at the Barbara Brennan School of Healing, the Society of Souls, and several other programs in the healing arts. She has explored the connection between business, integrity, and the well-being of humanity through the Conscious Business Institute. Amy is a natural intuitive, 
an empath, medium, and dreamwalker. Combining ancient and contemporary methods, Amy offers a sacred healing space for people to reestablish connection with their sense of wisdom and spirit guidance. All right, so first I just want to take what we call the touchdown dance. Uh, as uh, back in our childhoods, uh, I was a football player, you were a cheerleader. And just to celebrate uh, to this moment of being able to do the podcast together, um, if you could remind me, how long was it that you wanted to, to do this project? Yeah, I mean, it's been about eight years. People started asking me to do two things. One is, would you please do a podcast? And they were often asking, you know, the thing that you just said or just led me through the guided meditation or the knowledge or whatever. Um, I would love to have that recorded somewhere so that I could listen again. And um, also they asked for some learning experiences, some kind of recorded learning experience. So I'm really excited that this, all the pieces have finally come together in what I'm sure is the right timing. Yeah. And that's always the key, right? Uh, Right thing at the right time. And also we just want to take a moment here to express gratitude uh, because we did not do this alone. Uh, We started a Kickstarter campaign earlier this year uh, during the summer Uh, which we wrapped up uh, in late August, early September. Um, And that was really what gave us the funding to be able to get the equipment to make a good quality sound, uh, which nobody wants to listen to a bad sound. Um, So a lot of support came through, not only financially, uh, but just a lot of words of encouragement, um, just a lot of support from uh, our various communities uh, here in Georgia. So shout out to everyone uh, that really supported us to get us to this point. And so to start off this first episode... Uh, Actually, Dan, may I interrupt just for a moment? Absolutely. Because I want us to make sure that we are also um, overtly thanking the divine and all of the wisdom carriers and spirit guides who have also helped us from other levels. Mm, Absolutely. Very good point. Because it's not just us here on this uh, on this planet and having this experience. Thank you, Amy, for that very important interjection. And uh, now let's uh, let's get to know Amy. So we thought we'd start this first episode um, with getting to know a little bit more intimately each of us um, and the specific wisdom that we carry. And uh, you may have told me quite a long time ago when we met back in 2019, but uh, you call yourself, uh, and, and it really flows, Amy Bear. Where did the bear come from? Well, at a time when I was going through a lot of um, learning and growth and stepping into my healership and also um, being challenged quite a lot, the bear came to me in a dream. She said that she wanted me to take her name and have people call me that, which was a little bit um, unsettling (laughs) for me not to see the bear and have her speak to me, but to be given a name to be called and begin asking people to call me that was certainly was a new experience. Um, And so it was a process for me of learning what bear is about. And I did learn that bear is considered to be a very powerful heel. And um, also that bear is just really a, a consummate being at going within, going within to find answers going within to nurture herself and to um, come out with wisdom for herself and 
for others. Uh, there's also two other pieces. My full spirit name is Kodiak Bearpaw. <laughs> and those pieces came one at the time. So I learned that um, the paw was part of my name. And I understand that to be because I am the paw of the bear, meaning that I am to act as the bear medicine would have me act, um, to make choices as the bear would have me make choices. And Kodiak took me a longer time to understand. And finally, someone explained to me that Kodiak bears live on Kodiak Island. And because of their location, they actually uh, live a little bit closer to each other. There are a lot of bears on Kodiak Island. And so they live, they have a smaller bailiwick and live more closely. They have to drink from the same river. And so while they're still bears, very independent, they nevertheless have a bit more of um, connection than other bears. And I feel like that says something about me, uh, both independent and connected. Oh, that's so fascinating. I was actually going to ask about the, the Kodiak bear, Paul, the full name, so... I'm glad that you went ahead and uh, answered that second question in one swipe. And so my, my next question is uh, a lot of people that are sensitive and do this kind of work have kind of had, you know, some gifts and abilities since childhood. And was that also the case for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I came into this world with many, many memories that I um well, I perceived them as memories that were of me. They seemed like me, but in other bodies. And some of the bodies were male, some were female. They were of different um, ethnic origins. Um, and so that was one of the that I came into this world with. I also would perceive the world around me as if it was a moving mandala. And um, so it was just a different lens. It was like I could put on a certain lens and I would see the world as a mandala rather than the way that I think most of us usually see it in our three dimensions. I also would um, see a bug or an animal that seemed to be dying or struggling. And I would just walk over and kind of, it seemed like I was putting my hand over it, although I didn't really do that physically. It felt like it was mentally and I would now say spiritually holding the animal and I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even give it any thought. I just knew that it had an effect. I just knew that it never was something I questioned. And um, I now call that work the healing presence. Was there anyone like other children or other adults that you felt understood, like what your perspective, what your experience was like? Cause it does sound, you know, quite quite different uh, and enriching uh, spiritually versus the experience that most kids would have or what most parents would be able to understand? Yeah, no, I actually didn't have anyone. I didn't have any kids in my life. I didn't have any adults in my life who understood. So I learned pretty early to keep these experiences to myself. Um, I also, you know, it was a medium often surrounded by, um, I guess, you know, spirits of people or other kinds of beings from other dimensions and um, some of them were astral beings asking for assistance and some of them were um, higher beings offering assistance and that was just how my daily life was 
No, I didn't have anyone to talk to about that experience. And I think that luckily I was a fairly, um, I was athletic and, you know, had social skills. So I was able to engage with other people around other things, but it certainly made this part of myself feel very alone. Yeah. So then you found first your calling in uh, mental health work, right, as, as you grew into early adulthood. And then it was about uh, 10 years that you did work in mental health. Um, so what, what called you first uh, to, to do work in that space? Well, I took a psychology class in high school and I loved it. And I just thought, okay, I think this is what I would like to do. I think I'd like to become a psychologist. And um, all my life, I mean, people, other people had come to me, you know, other kids and stuff, asking me questions and turning to me for, you know, reflection and um, maybe advice or something like that. So it was kind of natural and normal to me. And uh, so I went in that direction. I got my master's degree and my master's degree was in transpersonal psychology. But with my background of being um, more spiritually connected in so many different kinds of ways and more intuitive and highly empathic, it was just a natural progression for me to lean into those kinds of um, offerings. And I kind of began in graduate school with work. I was just helping people with dream work. And then I would go into what I described earlier that I now call the healing presence. And it just kind of naturally flowed. And then people would come back the next week and say, I don't know what you did last week, but I want you to do that again. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't really know what I was doing either. I've just always done it. So that was kind of an interesting introduction. So then at some point I decided that it must be like, I'd better start understanding more about what I was doing since people wanted it. And um, I began that journey of learning and study. Yeah. And, and if, if you don't mind just expanding a bit on that, like what it's like where your work has unfolded and, you know, there really wasn't a whole lot of guidance. There wasn't a whole lot of, uh, you know, practice and theory behind it that you learn from an institution or a person. It was really just the unfolding of your own wisdom and experience, which led you to this whole body of work. Um, but really without much of a, a guide or mentor, yeah, um, that's true, except for my inner mentoring and um, inner guidance with my wisdom keepers um, or my spirit guides who were always with me. Um, I remember even in the crib, just kind of like, you know, looking out and seeing them like they were looking down at me. And I just felt loved. Um, that was the main thing is that I felt loved. And as I grew, I would begin to ask questions. And sometimes they would answer. But most of the time, what I perceived as a child is that they looked at the part of me that already knew the truth. And I still think that's kind of how it is that they learned, they activated the vibration of that part of me that already knew or that could receive that wisdom and that truth. And I did not feel completely alone. I did create my own language <laughs> Um, and, and then when I, I was always a prolific reader. And so early on, like at nine or 10 years old, I started reading all kinds of things that were, um, religious and spiritual text and, um, you know, other kinds of traditions that philosophy 
thinks that. Um, I was very interested in ethics, but I was even more interested in this, you know, this other whole world of what was subtler than the three-dimensional world that we were living in. Does that answer the question? Yeah. And then um, segueing from that, because you mentioned the contact, you know, with your spirit guides, um, could you elaborate a little bit on how you feel their communication come to you? And do you find, is it different? Is it a different sort of medium or contact point or way of perceiving for each person? I'm not sure that I fully understand that question, Dan. Can you clarify a little bit more? Yeah. So, um, do you hear like their voices as in like a conversation? Uh, is, does it come to you, um, symbolically in terms of, you know, physical things like, um, birds or what, or, you know, uh, objects, you know, that happens in front of you. Um, just, just, um, if you could expand on how is it that you receive the guidance of communication from your spirit guides and is that maybe different? Do people perceive it in different ways? Oh yeah. Great question. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody perceives this in their own way. And, uh, that's what I've learned. And for me, um, my connection with what I call my fifth dimensional spirit guides, which means to me, the fifth dimension is a place where um, they've transcended negative intention in the sense that I don't have to concern myself with whether there's a negative intention. Um, They're just, it's just clear that they're connected. Um, And it's always direct knowing um, what some people call clairsentience. It's like, I just know. So I often use the language of, oh, this is what I'm hearing them say. But it's not with my ears. I'm not hearing it. Um, it's just like a knowing in my brain. And often they will you know, respond to me by putting visuals, um, some kind of symbols. Um, and then, of course, there's also plant, animal, and mineral medicine. And uh, those pe- those beings also show themselves to me in a similar way. But overall, everyone seems to have their own dominant sense. Um, people that I know who are musicians, and I know you fall into this category, Dan, so I don't know if, you know, often are very clear audience, and that may or may not be true for you. I know someone who um, her sense of smell is actually her strongest subtle sense. She might smell... Um, you know, her grandmother's cookies (laughs) and be like, oh, my grandmother's close by. And then she'll receive, you know, some kind of wisdom message um, that seems to come from her grandmother. So, yeah, I think there are so many different ways of receiving and so many different combinations. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you clarifying that um, because I think a lot of people assume that uh, like clear audience, for example, like it's going to be heard with the the physical ears. And if you're um, someone who's connected to, um, you know, sight, it, it's, you know, where it's uh, titled clairvoyance that you're going to see it with your physical eyes. But of course, it happens on a subtler level. And, and so it's not going to be in, in such a, a gross level of perception, the way that uh, we come into contact with these things. Not and, usually. Um, and I do know people who do see with their physical eyes. Um, but that seems to be rarer. Um, but like, usually it's like what you see or hear on your mind screen. So like my car is not in front of me right now, but I can see it. (laughs) So that's the kind of, you know, something that's on your mind screen or, you know, my favorite song. I mean, I can hear it in my mind right now, even though it's not playing around me. So I do hear it on my mind screen. Mm. 
so you, a lot of your work is is happening on this spiritual level with people, and so I wonder, um, you know, does that pose a challenge in staying grounded and being in a world that has quite a lot of stimuli, quite a lot of activity, and people moving around at fast paces? Wow, yeah, it really does. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it poses quite the challenge, and I think that that's gotten um, to be more so in the time that I've been on earth because of, um, you know, more people, faster pace. We have internet, we have, um, like, you know, all kinds of vibrations like 5g vibrations and, um, you know, just jet planes and just so much stuff, so much technology that's putting out vibrations that our bodies are not really haven't been made for. Um, so we're really processing a lot of stuff, that we're not even conscious necessarily that we are processing. So I have found that most of my clients come to me saying that um, same thing and wondering how they can feel more balanced and grounded and centered and reconnect with themselves. That's a big part of actually what I offer is helping people to find practices that are, you know, easiest and most natural for them. Um, to get rebalanced, to come back to yourself. Um, often we're already doing something that connects and balances, and we just need to kind of notice that and build on it. When I was a kid, I remember looking out the window of the car at the stars, and I would just go into this state of being where I felt completely at one with the entire universe, and yet absolutely unique in myself. And, um, you know, that's a pretty simple thing to do right is look out at the stars and that's one that really does that for me hmm. i love that one so much imagery comes up when uh i feel like in my mind in anyone's mind when you say we'll just look up and, and peer at the stars i think everybody has like a quite a, a visceral experience and, and quite a lot of imagery uh, when you get to a place where there's not uh not very much ambient light so is this sensitivity, because, and, and we'll get to this later, um, where there's some psychiatrists that have written about empaths and, and some of these definitions that are on the internet about sensitive people. And it seems to give this notion that it's something that we really can't control, that we can't turn off. Um, is this something like, sort of like a dimmer switch where we can choose, um, you know, kind of when and how much uh, of this type of information is coming into our being? Yeah, and that's something that um, I learned when I had, uh, when I finally did find some people around me who understood my gifts and could help me understand um, how to handle them. Because I did not know how to do this for a very long time. I was actually in my early 30s before I found that teacher and was able to learn how to do this. So, yes, there are ways that you can, you know, set the dimmer switch or turn the volume down or whatever. Um, there's a way also to set your higher self, your higher, your divine self, if you will, your divine spark, and ask that part of your higher wisdom to create a net around you or a filter. Um, I learned to set my filter at, I only want to become aware of that which is in my greatest good or the greatest good of those I'm meant to serve. So I don't have random information coming to me all the time from all over the place because I used to, and it could be mm. quite overwhelming. Um, and, 
And I often felt a lot of pull to, um, you know, empathically, I would be kind of caught up in the energetic storm around me and, um, you know, feeling like I really wanted to genuinely from the heart wanted to assist those who were feeling um, caught up in a storm, uh, whether it was emotional or mental or whatever. And, you know, also just wanting to calm all of that so that I could feel calm. <laughs> and uh, it's absolutely unnecessary to make sure that the storm around you is calm for you to be calm. It's like walking into the center of a hurricane, as they say, and you're in the eye of the storm and you can look around and see, you know, like in the Wizard of Oz, you know, Dorothy is looking around and there's houses swirling and the witch is going by on her broom, you know, <laughs> she sees all of that, but you know, she's, it, you're in the eye of the storm. So you're witnessing those things happening. And in a sense, it seems as if it slows them down and you have a greater, um, you have a greater ability to choose a much greater and more empowered ability to choose. So that's an absolutely essential thing to learn. Um, and then also, you know, everybody's, I mean, I said what my settings are, what I asked my higher wisdom to filter for me, how I wanted it to be filtered. Somebody else's filter might be really different. Um, that's just the one that I came to as being right for me. Right. No, and I think that's a really important point to have uh, the tools, right? And, and to not get overwhelmed. And And this thought just came to my mind. So like in the regular world, if you have a close friend and they reach out for help, um, and, and we may not be in a place to be able to be of service and to support that person. Um, you know, there can be a little bit of, of residual guilt. Uh, you know, if, if in that moment, it's, it's we're really not in a place to be of service. But does that happen the same way on the spiritual sense where, sense where there's someone's spirit reaching out that needs support, but, you know, you're just not in a place, you know, to, to be a, uh, of service to them at that time? Does, does, it, does it play sort of on you in, in a guilt sense in the same way or not so much? Uh, yeah, that happens frequently. Um, I hear it from my clients and, um, I've been through some of that myself. The, what I have learned about that is that it is essential for me to ask, to connect with the higher wisdom and ask, am I meant to assist this person in this moment? And to listen for the answer. So like my heart might go out to the person or the being, or my, my ego might want for whatever its reasons to assist. But I really need to be listening to the higher wisdom um, and aligning with that. And also, you know, if it says, yes, you are meant to assist this being, then I'm going to ask, is that something I need to do right at this moment? Because I'm tired because I feel imbalanced, you know, whatever my reasons are. And I can give that information to the higher wisdom and, and, you know, given this situation, <laughs> you know, what do you suggest? And then again, to listen. And when I say listen, I mean, again, I'm using language that's not entirely accurate. So I'm, I'm basically opening my perception. I'm receiving the messages. And because I have my antenna set to listening to, um, higher wisdom, not just any random astral thought that goes by, right? Then mm -hmm. I'm actually listening to um, 
something that knows what's better, what's best, uh, more than my conscious self does. And then I can make a choice. I can still um, go against what the higher wisdom tells me if I choose to. That's something I rarely do now because um, usually doesn't turn out well. (laughs) 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 And and one more thing I'll say about that is that um, my guides, my spirit guides actually showed me at one point that it's hubris for me to um, try to assist everyone, you know, because um, that's really, that's, that's the right and the responsibility of the divine. And, you know, the divine will let me know if and when I'm able to step in. And I find that what happens when I step in and I wasn't really supposed to is that I may be unconsciously more enabling than I am assisting, which are two very different things. Mm. And that brings up an important question for, uh, I think for me and, and that most people would, would come to mind is how, and, and I'm sure this is um, something that comes up with clients how do you teach and cultivate the discernment between what is higher wisdom and maybe what is, you know, stuff coming from someone's own ego and, and trying to be uh, a hero or, or whatever the archetype is that their ego wants to be? Yeah, what a great question. Um, and I think that we should do a whole podcast on that, Dan, because that's such an important question. And so many people, so many of us, you know, need to have that answered. It may be slightly different for each person, how they make that discernment um, specifically. Um, but there is a completely different resonance. And once you get used to distinguishing between the resonance, it's usually not confusing anymore. So you can ask a question and, you know, like, is this coming from my higher wisdom? And you either get a clear yes resonance or a clear no resonance or you might get, golly, I'm not sure, which for me means that I need to do some more. Um, I need to get more balanced and listen again, right, before I respond. But in terms of a, a practice for that, yes, there are definitely some practices for that. I think that would be a great podcast for us to do. Okay, so that question is going to be its whole own episode a little bit later. So stay tuned for that one. And uh, last question I, I have for you. Um, what is the, the most common issue that you see that people are facing um, when they're trying to find what they're calling is? I, th- I feel like there's a lot of people out there that are really struggling to find, um, you know, what, what am I called to do? Uh, you know, what, what, is, what am I here for? What, what am I, what's, in what way am I best meant to serve? Um, and and what, do you, what do you find are the, the most common issues that impede people from being able to find that? Well, one is that in my practice, most of us are highly empathic. And that is such a beautiful gift. And we really need the skill set to have that, um, those filters around us in order to not get overwhelmed um, by our own empathy, by our own genuine caring. Um, and if we have been traumatized, or if we have not been properly trained, then it might feel as if we have almost no skin at all. And we're just like, you know, being kind of almost assaulted or overwhelmed by, you know, the, the ocean of energy currents around us. And that makes it very difficult to be connected with your true nature and your 
it also makes it hard to want. It's like there can be this great desire. Like I, I really feel like I'm supposed to be serving in some way, but then when I try to do that, I get overwhelmed. Yeah, <laughs> you got some skill sets to learn, mm. you know, in order to be able to do that in an effective way that won't overwhelm you, that won't drown you, that won't um, drain you, completely drain you. So that's one of the most important pieces. The other is just how to be connected, how to plug in. You know, how do I plug into my higher truth, my deeper wisdom? And sometimes we haven't really been trained in how to do that. I mean, on one hand, that's our birthright. But on another hand, our world really teaches us a lot of stuff um, that gets in the way. So we have, you know, and we might have taken on some patterns um, of defense, like defensive patterns or uh, whatever kind of patterns that get in the way, kind of like, you know, I can't, I can't see the sun for the clouds, you know, and um, so how do I, how do I shift the clouds so that I can connect with the sun? Um, and then, of course, in terms of actual service, then sometimes people don't have the skill set for, um, I mean, most of us have to develop a whole range of skill set to, you know, how do, how do we connect with the people <laughs> who need our service? How do we help them to understand that we're here for their service? Um, you know, what's the avenue? And uh, that, that's a tough one, too. Um, and then just finally, I'll say that um, it comes down to what I call the subtle sense skills, um, meaning the intuitive and the empathic skills. And I already touched on the empathic piece. But also with intuitive skills, if you are an intuitive, and I think that we're all intuitives, it's just a matter of degree and how much interest we have in that part of our our experience, then, you know, we want to learn to master that skill set in order to bring it into our service. And it can be really distracting if we haven't really been trained, if we haven't um, learned how to use that skill set and how to align it with what we want to do and how we want to serve. And service can mean our own family, right? It can mean, you know, a professional service. I mean, service can mean a whole lot of things. It may just mean I want to carry this kind of vibration within myself, a vibration of peace or of power or of courage or wisdom so that I'm bringing that vibration into the universe. And I know that that has a positive impact. All of those things are different kinds of service. Mm. I have more questions, but uh, these will lead into to future topics and, and future episodes that we'll cover. Um, so we'll leave it there for now. Um, thank you so much, Amy, for sharing. And, and now we're going to switch roles, uh, switch places. So uh, now you get to become the interviewer and uh, I get to become the subject. Okay. So let's get to know Dan now. Um, now, Dan, I've known you for a while, several years, and um I know that you are a highly sensitive person and a very intuitive and empathic person. Um, and would you say that those things were true of you as a child as well? Oh, 100%. Um, my dad told me this story because uh, I don't have the memory of it uh, accessible and maybe we'll say yet. Uh, and I love this story. So when, uh, when I was born at the hospital, 
um, my, I was separated in the room, you know, where they take all the babies. And then this nurse came up to my dad and said, uh, you know, Mr. Ellis, would you like to go see your son? And he said, of course. So, uh, they're walking over through the hallway and then they're standing like on the outside of the room, but there's glass. It's like a glass wall. And so my dad's looking in and, you know, you kind of see all these and, and like every, all these babies are just born, right? So they're all kind of sleeping and exhausted. And then there's this one that's kind of been separated from the rest of the group. And in this uh, little crib, this, you know, this little plastic tub, this one baby is literally standing up with a red face, one little hair sticking out of the top of the head, shaking the crib and screaming. And, uh, and that was me. And so, uh, I think that is a testament to one, like just kind of the intensity sometimes, um, that comes through, uh, uh, myself as it's kind of a, a part of my nature, uh, but also the sensitivity. I think I was absolutely livid that, you know, my umbilical cord had been cut so early and, I wasn't with my mom or in the arms of, of a, a parent or uh, a loved one, someone that I could trust. And uh, so that was definitely um, a story that is a testament to my sensitivity. And then, of course, once I do have memory and became more aware, uh, I was always very sensitive as a child. Uh, my older brother liked to pick on me, and um, he knew all the right buttons to press. And uh, it helped me kind of grow a, a thick skin, but um, I think one of the reasons I became... Uh, a really good friend to uh, the friends that I, I had at school is uh, I was really in tune uh, with their emotions. Uh, it was really easy for me to pick up on what someone else felt and uh, also kind of have a sense of like what their needs were. Uh, it was really easy to like be there uh, as a friend. And um, all those things came very, very natural. And, um, you know, it always was confusing to me when people would, you know, have such a a disconnect of understanding what's going on in other people, like not knowing what other people feel to me. That was like, I just figured everyone knew that, you know, it was like a language you could just see in someone's face and body. Um, so yeah, I was, I was very, very sensitive child. Uh, very, very quite sensitive. Yeah. And so how did that, um, you know, how did that affect you? Like, how did you experience that and how did you experience it? You know, as a young boy growing into a man. Yeah, that that's where it got uh, kind of tricky in in uh, combination with the the culture, uh, and and I don't think this is necessarily unique to uh, the American culture, but um, there are some unique facets to it in the way and what a lot of people are talking about now, right, with this toxic masculinity piece. But um, I think it's more than just the interpretation of uh, the role of the masculine. And, uh, so as I came into, um, you know, early adulthood in like middle school and high school, uh, there's kind of this standing notion that these natural qualities that you have, which is this innate sensitivity and, um, uh, you know, this vulnerability. And, um, I always had a lot of friends that were guys, you know, on kind of the athletic and sports side and go out and do fun things together and shoot each other with paintball guns. But I also had a lot of friends that were that were girls and that were women. Um, it was very easy to me to relate on the artistic side and, and the emotional side and, and have an interest in what's going on, you know, with other people. And um, so as I got to be into this like middle school and high school age, it was kind of like all these other qualities in which you connect to, uh, to the women and the girls in your life is those aren't really kind of acceptable. Uh, they're basically, 
seen as synonymous with weakness. And so vulnerability and sensitivity don't help you. Um, for example, like when you play football, the whole game of football is, um, you know, physicality and kind of ruthless and very aggressive. Um, and, and that's very, you know, fixated in, in the culture, especially in the South and the Southeast. And so, of course, since I played, um, you know, since like fourth grade, um, and then it gets, you know, it has more weight put on it as you get older. Uh, it was like these other parts of me that were very important to me and that were a part of my sensitivity and part of my gifts um, were not only not seen, but it was like, there's no place for that here. Uh, that actually does you a disservice. It makes you a, a less less of a man. It makes you less of a, of a football player. And so it really became a, a conflict. And um, it, it, uh, it started to cause in me um, sort of a mistrust with this older uh, parental male figure because I realized there was not only like they're not seeing me for these parts that are important to me, but it's like telling me and demanding and asking for me not to be that. And, um, and so there is just this growing kind of, uh, mistrust and angst and skepticism with, with these figures. And, um, so that, uh, that, that was kind of the birth of this internal conflict that, uh, it took me quite a while to, peel all the layers back, um, uh, especially with some of these relationships. And then this conflict also with the culture at large, right? In understanding what this archetype and what this role is of a man in society nowadays, right? Is this kind of protective figure, um, you know, someone who provides, but not so much as someone who is there for other people in, in the ways that, that, uh, that a woman is right. And, and with a sense of vulnerability and understanding, um, and, and holding space for someone as they're walking through, uh, you know, tough experiences, um, with a sense of sensitivity. And, uh, so yeah, there was, uh, there definitely became quite a, a layered conflict within me, uh, as I got to be, uh, you know, that, uh, that late middle school, uh, high school age. So how did you, um, peel back the layers as you call it and, and begin to come to terms with, you know, who you are, all these, these many different aspects of you and the many different archetypes that seemed at least to perhaps be um, at odds. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, for a time, it was just pretty much suppression. Uh, and I think most people, uh, for various reasons, whether you're uh, male, female, or otherwise, and and the culture that you grow up in, there's some sort of level of suppression of yourself, right? That's because it's inconvenient or it doesn't mirror the values of the culture that you're in, or it doesn't match the uh, religion that your, your family uh, is in, or, you know, your parents maybe don't understand or support uh, that aspect of you. So I think at first it was um, coping with suppressing that and not expressing it. Um, and then of course you get to a point where, uh, your need to be part of the group and the need to be your authentic self, you know, like the, the scales tip in, in one side. And, uh, so for me, it was like, once I was able to go, uh, you know, to college and, and be on my own, it was like, all right, I, I no longer have the responsibility and the requirement of the family piece. And then I could make my own decisions on, on the religious piece. And, um, and then of course in, uh, like a college university setting, uh, the culture is quite unique. And I think that was part of the reason 
uh, I chose the university I did, which was Georgia College and State University, which is a, a smaller liberal arts school in Milledgeville, Georgia. I was very clear about not going to, and I don't know that I would have been able to get in at the time, but to something like the University of Georgia, right, which more mirrors kind of the mainstream culture. But this smaller university, you know, in a smaller city and and having this liberal arts feel, and at the time I didn't even know what it meant, but for some reason it was so clear to me, and I think this was, um, you know, higher guidance really making this clear for me to go to that school. And uh, it had its own culture, its own milieu. And uh, I remember, uh, I can't remember the name of it. I, I wish I could remember, but there was a book that we had to read in the summer before our fall uh, classes, and it was for our literature class. And uh, I remember it was written by uh, a woman, and it was uh, a woman that lived in a, in a totally different country and in a totally different culture. And I remember especially, especially my dad's, but I remember both my parents having like a sense of judgment, like, why are you reading that? I guess in their mind, we should be reading something about like, I don't know, the, uh, you know, around the time that America was founded or the Civil War or, you know, some era of, of American history that's, that's important. And um, I found that book really interesting. And, you know, I had kind of always had sort of a limited perspective of, you know, a, a suburban family and, uh you know, entrenched in the activities around the school and the institution of the school. And uh, it was kind of like a very narrow uh, perspective. And then all of a sudden when I, you know, opened up and, and was reading about this woman that was in a totally different country, a totally different culture, it was like, yeah, there's so much more out there that, that you need to see and look at. And um, it really was the birth of me being able to start uh, opening my eyes more and um, and understanding the perspective and and where other people come from in terms of geography and culture, and um, another part clicked for me more spiritually, uh, and it really started to crack the foundations of my belief system when I took uh, my philosophy class my my freshman year, and we were reading the Tao Te Ching, and um, I just remember sitting with it, and uh, and just after each class. And then like writing poems and uh, it just, it, it really started to shape the way that I was seeing and understanding the world. Um, it's kind of hard to explain, but it was happening on a very subtle level. And uh, and that to me, there was like this spark of, of a change. It was, I could just feel my underlying beliefs, my underlying sense of um, perspective and perception were really kind of changing underneath my feet. Because uh, I was finally in an, in an environment where um, there wasn't a fixed idea that I had to be attached to, that I had to reflect, um, that I had to be in a sense. Um, so that for me was a really liberating time and uh, kind of like the, the arc at which a lot of things started to shift. So a lot of times around that age group, you know, people, um, as you say, they may unplug from some of the things that they grew up with and explore on their own. And but it sounds like that you have some kind of anchor within your being that led you closer to who you really are in some deeper, truer way that not everybody in it necessarily has a connection to. Would you say that's true? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and even to this day, it's it, and I'm sure you, you probably find the same and to a certain degree. It's hard to explain, but I remember my brother telling me when I was younger, uh, or actually, no, it was probably around this time. He said, and and he and was kind of perplexed 
and he was saying, you're like one of the most like intuitive people that I know, but you're also extremely rational. It was like these two seemingly opposite qualities at the same time that he couldn't like rectify. Like, like how can these things go together? It was, it was like a paradox. Um, and that's where to me, it feels like the intuitive side is really coming from the guides on the spiritual realm and where it's like this super intense, strong resolve in this, like you said, this direct knowing that if I go against this, it's going to be a disaster. And I finally got to the point in my mid-20s where I just let that guide, and I'll, I'll understand and figure out the details later. Um, because I had enough instances where, you know, I would let my rational mind, and that's also a cultural part, right? You know, the our society really values science and uh, rational thinking and the the scientific method approach, you know, this evidence-based approach to just making all decisions in life. It has its place, but if I let that decide over this really strong, you know, coming through my body sense of direct knowing, um, then like you said, it doesn't, it doesn't end well. So for me, it was like these two pieces, but coming from very different places. Um, and, and so, you know, as I got quieter and as I started working through, um, quieting my mind, getting more in touch with myself and, and, really who I am, then that piece became louder. That, that, uh, connection to the direct knowing, um, became a lot more, uh, resilient and became more loud, uh, within me. And then, um, it was easier to let that, uh, kind of take the reins, uh, especially for these bigger, you know, life decision points. Wow. Beautiful. And like, I'm curious, how did you get from, you know, do you want to say some things about how you, walked through from that pot, that time that you're talking about into the time where you are now and how you feel about your um, sensitivity. And I mean, one of the things that has come up frequently today um, in talking with you, Dan, is about these things that seem opposite and how, you know, you have found a way and, and marry those qualities that, our world doesn't necessarily think go together. Um, and having known you for a number of years now, I would say that that is true of you, that you really do marry a lot of um, different kinds of qualities in a very beautiful and seamless way. And I'm just curious how you got from what you've been talking about to where you are now. Yeah, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, Marrying together these opposites is, I, I think, part of uh, what a Gemini brings to the world, right? Uh, it's kind yeah. of the, the, the twins on, on polar sides. Um, yeah, so after, so when I went to university, that was um, 2009, 2010, and that's when uh, the economic crisis happened, right? So we had the housing crisis, and then, you know, the economy really took a nosedive, and, and when the bailouts and all those things happened. And so, um, you know, there was more pressure, uh, you know, on our family and, and on me because I felt like, you know, I don't want to be any more financial burden than I have to. Um, and so I studied economics and I did everything possible to graduate in four years. And there was this, uh, overwhelming sense of like responsibility and fear, uh, to graduate and then get a, you know, a, a good uh, a good job, um, uh, you know, a well-paying job uh, right out of, of school. 
And um, so that kind of pervaded, you know, my sense of being able to, uh, this unfolding that began in my first year as a, as a freshman in college um, was a beautiful experience. But then as, as I got later on and realizing the transition I was going to have to make, that really, be, you know, took over my, my apparatus, so to speak, with this kind of paralyzing fear of, um, I, I just, you know, I, I can't be a failure and not, uh, and not have a, a good job coming out and make this, you know, seamless transition. Um, and so I did a UP, uh, an internship at UPS at their corporate office. And then uh, I got a job right out of school. I literally graduated on and walked on a Saturday in early May. And then I started, um, my first day on the following Monday. And, uh, so I had zero time in between. And then, I was at that office maybe about six or seven months, um, and we actually had great people in our group, but it was so clear to me, it was there's so many things about myself that are being completely unnourished, completely unobserved, completely unused, and I knew it was so clear. It was like, I don't even know if I could do this for a handful of years, much less an entire career. Like, I literally would go crazy. Um, it was just so clear and it was so overwhelming. And, um, I remember going to, uh, take a, uh, a day off and I was just going to go observe for the day, uh, my aunt's school called Jacob Slatter in Roswell, uh, which was just one city North of Sandy Springs. And, uh, I remember going to the school and spending that entire day there. And, um, and so it's a, a school for, uh, neurologically challenged kids, mostly autism, but, but various diagnoses. And I was just, it's hard to describe, I was just, I was just captivated. Um, and something about this environment had a sense of magic to it. And I just love the work of supporting the kids in their journey. And there's something about kids that kind of brings back these elements of vulnerability and wonder and imagination and sort of magic. And, and you could just feel it uh, being there. And it was the feeling sense to where I was like, gosh, and this was a Thursday, right? So I was like, when I go back into the office on Friday, it's going to just be such a different experience in, what, in terms of what I'm going to feel and an environment for me uh, at a pivotal time of, of, of growth. And, and uh, as I'm really coming into being uh, who I am and, and uncovering this, this authentic sense of myself. And um, so I put in my two weeks on that Friday uh, and then started working at Jacob's Ladder uh, as a teacher. And uh, my first student uh, was actually uh, very, very uh, psychically connected. And he uh, had a teacher who was like a mother figure for him. And she showed me, she's like, I'm just going to go ahead and, and show you just so you know, um, you know, his mind reading. I'm like, his mind reading. And so she showed me over three or four different exercises and taking away, you know, all possibility of him extracting information in another way. Uh, and showing how he would, you know, literally have a, a psychic way to be able to pull information from what she was thinking. And, um, and so I got to work with him for several months. And um, that was a, a really big, uh, really important time for me, kind of breaking down these belief systems um, that I think a lot of it came from training and a science, right? Because, you know, my education was economics and finance. So that's primarily what I studied the last two years of school. And so when we're exposed and, and repeated uh, training on how the world works, and it, it imposes quite a limitation, 
right, of, of how we uh, understand how the world works and what our role is in it. And um, so th- I just felt all of these uh, belief systems and structures start eroding. And then I started meeting um, over time, you know, more sensitive people with gifts and would share with me their insights and, and um, what they were perceiving, what they were receiving. And I was just constantly getting blown away. And um, I, I was reading different books and training materials, and I just kept coming up on Tai Chi, Tai Chi over and over. I just kept seeing it. And so I finally found a class, and then that's when for, and, and maybe it's something I felt in childhood, but then I finally actually felt it with my hands. Um, I, I felt energy coming in through the palm of my hands, which was a really fascinating experience. And, um, and, and then from there, it was like I just went on a reading tear um, you know, and then I, I started uh, doing yoga, started experimenting with meditation until I found a proper teacher, which I highly recommend doing. And um, it just kind of shot me off on this this whole different arc. Um, and then I really felt in these spaces where I would go to a yoga class or when I would do Tai Chi with my teacher or by myself, uh, when I'd be in a group meditating, it's like this is a, this was the type of space where I could really authentically be myself. And, um, and since then that was probably started Tai Chi was 2015. So it's been about an eight year arc of, uh, purifying and letting go of these old limiting beliefs and, uh, you know, cultivating this awareness and, um, the ability to connect into the energy as it's coming in, you know, to my body and through my spirit. And, uh, it's, it's been utterly fascinating, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's the long answer. Uh, to how I, I got to to this point from from there. Thanks for sharing that. I think a lot of folks can identify with feeling undernourished and unseen in a job, and, and that they want something different, that they need something more, and not really knowing how to, um, you know, pursue that. So I think that is um, a really important, um, you know, thing that you shared with us. Also, just learning so much from an unexpected source, like a kid, especially what we might call a special needs kid and letting that educate and inform your path. That's a really amazing aspect for me, I think. And I really appreciate your sharing that. I wonder um, what you would have to say to um, other men, young men, older men, whoever, who may have some of these other kinds of archetypes that you carry that are underappreciated in our world or even outright rejected and ridiculed, what would you have to say to, and and as you say, also women, because women have those kinds of archetypes too, you know, the more um, assertive uh, kinds of archetypes. So what would you have to say? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, Off the top, I would, I would have to say that, recognize there's cultural aspects, familial aspects, religious aspects that have kind of created an environment that is is not conducive for you being the way that you are. And in that part, it's, it's not your fault. Um, there's a, a really good book I'm reading uh, called The Myth of Normal, and it's written by physician Gabor Mate, which is explaining um, sort of a, a toxic culture um, that precipitates, um, that can precipitate, you know, chronic illness. And it just makes it more challenging to be, um, sensitive in the world. 
And so recognizing that that's a part of it. And the more that you start to become yourself and, and really on your journey of doing your healing work, um, the more your energy field in your body will resonate with the people that you will find that love you and that you can create community with. And I think having a, a, um, a stable of people and having a system of support is one of the most important things. And it's hardest at the beginning to find those people because when we, we feel the, the shame and rejection, right, of uh, the people around us, perhaps our family and the culture that doesn't accept the way that we are and the way that we wish to be, um, you know, we're vibrating in a way that's maybe not going to attract the person uh, who we resonate with most, who can see us for who we are. And so um, that beginning part is the toughest. And um, it's, I think, first the recognition that this conflict that we feel is precipitated by a, a culture that doesn't, an environment that doesn't support who we are. And as we start to purify that and recognize that, then we begin to vibrate in a way where we're going to attract the people um, that can create an environment and a culture that's really healthy for us to thrive and, and really find and be who we are. And um, I've, I've definitely found that to be the case. And it's a really liberating experience um, when you can find that. And I think also, um, you know, when I was in my early 20s and, and I went through this this phase of all the friends that I had were uh, used to kind of behaving and interacting with me in a certain way. And then all of a sudden it was like I was letting go of that life and that lifestyle and that way of being. And so it was a period where, you know, I really kind of spent more time alone, um, which was okay for a time. And then uh, once I got clear on how it was I wanted to be and the type of practices and the way I wanted to spend my time, it was really organic in, in how I would find the people to share that with. And there's probably more people out there than you think. Um, and I think that's a belief too that can be defeating is, well, there's just, you know, there's nobody out there like me or that thinks or feels or experiences life like, like me. And there definitely are, but think about it. We're, we're all sensitive in a culture that, that doesn't necessarily appreciate that. So there's kind of like a sense of hiding, um, that we're all doing. And, um, so it, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, kind of being creative and being a bit vulnerable and, and getting out there and finding those people. But um, I, I found that they're definitely out there. It just uh, sometimes takes a little bit of, uh, of courage and stepping out there to find them. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for um, sharing all of that. And I just want to reinforce what you said about how important and valuable it is to find that community of people that really resonate with you and with your values and your experience because um you know it's it's not fun to choose between being connected with yourself and being connected with other people and um yeah i just think that that's a really important to be able to ground into a community of people that you feel supported and loved by as you are is really important and then I have one final question for you, Dan, and I'm just curious about, you know, your leadership today, you know, your healership. Um, you know, I know there's several different aspects to it. And I just wonder, like, who you serve and, you know, how you how you go about helping people and what you help them with. It's really good a question as well. I find, like you, most of the people I serve uh, tend to be uh, more sensitive 
uh, more intuitive. And there seems to be a common theme. Um, and really whether it's people that, that come for, for yoga or Reiki, um, or when we're doing, you know, uh, events or, or workshops, um, sensitive people that have become a little bit overwhelmed and there's just so many decisions that we have to make, uh, on a day in day out basis, uh, a lot of pressure, um, especially on parents. Uh, I find that parents, uh, the, the parental unit, whereas we used to raise a child by a small band of people and would share the load, uh, to care for the irreducible needs of, of children, which are quite extensive in those early years, um, is really not the case anymore. It's really these kind of, uh, close knit biological families, right? It's, it's kind of like the parents and the kids. And so it's quite a lot of stress that's then imposed upon the parents to try to meet uh, all of their own needs and all of their children's needs without a whole lot of help. And, um, you know, since we've moved out, uh, into more spread out suburban areas, you know, it's not like it used to be where you would have, you know, two or maybe three generations of a family living in the same house where you have, you know, parents or, or grandparents or what have you that would help, you know, support the, the raising of the child. So I, I find it's, it's sensitive people that have a lot on their plate and a bit overwhelmed and, um, you can see it in you, you can feel it. Right. And so there's, like constrictions that are in the body. And that's one area that we address, uh, in in the yoga practices and in the physical asana practices and, um, trying to get the body to settle down because the, the body is tight because the mind is, is stressed and overwhelmed and has too much to think about and too much to decide upon. So we, you know, we work through the body, um, as a way to start inviting the mind to settle and um, at the, the bodyhood where I, I do my Reiki work, there's a lot of massage therapists I work with. And, you know, they asked me, how is it that I explain Reiki? And, and it took me a while to, to figure out a, a good way to, to speak to it. But um, the way I spoke to it at the open house a couple of days ago was, you know, in massage, you use that technique of manual manipulation to get the tissues to settle. But why have the tissues tightened in the first place, right? It's usually a an overabundance of mental and emotional stimuli that's caused the body to close down. And so in Reiki, we're working on the, through the energetic level, because the subtler, the aspect that you're working on, uh, the more adaptable it is to change, the more malleable it is. So when we work through the energy field, the way the body feels it is first through the nervous system. And so we're getting the nervous system to calm and settle down and we're clearing things on the energetic level, uh, which helps clear uh, the body and uh, it helps the body get to a place where it can realign it's not in these um, maladaptive patterns right in our even in our physiology in our physical being right and that's what happens in chiropractic we're trying to realign the structures of the body uh, in in a more um, healthy geometrical pattern and so in in my work it tends to take on um and influence the mental and the emotional apparatuses. And so we're trying to get the nervous system in the mind to calm down and settle because it's like a traffic jam of stimuli. There's, there's too many thoughts. There's too much information coming in and going out. And it's, it's interesting. Like I'll see people around walking around in the neighborhood and in the time that they're going to de-stress where they're like going to take a walk, they have like ear pods in and listening to something. So it's like this culture of just constant bombardment of information and stimuli. And 
our minds are you know, what I find minds tend to be very overloaded. And so in Reiki, it's, it's quiet. I say very little. I'm usually just directing awareness to a place or, or breathing in a certain way. And it's a time where we really just shut down the senses and let the body restore itself. And um, on the emotional part, it's, you know, I, I tell people, because this is what I find, it, it's not something that you can kind of like conjure up like a, like a breathing exercise, uh, which is called pranayama in a yoga uh, setting. Um, the emotional part, it's like we can set the environment and we can set the space, but it really happens spontaneously. And so that's the other aspect that we're working on is um, to help people to be able to connect into their heart and to be able to set time aside and slow down enough to where these emotions um, that have been kind of plaguing them in the background and causing issues through the, through the physiology and that a lot, a lot of times makes people feel clouded mentally um, because it's something that really wants to express itself and be seen and be felt um, so it can run its its course through the body. Um, it just doesn't have the time. And so when we settle, uh, it, it actually allows that process to take its course. And a lot of times, just in that first conversation I have with people, like, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes before the first Reiki session, you can f- see like, you know, the, the tears in their eyes well up. There's just something that's waiting, just bust, busting at the seams to be really felt and to be honored and, um, and, and just kind of waiting for the time where the body and the mind isn't so busy where it can come through. And, um, yeah, a, a lot of the, the people I work with, you know, and whether it's, you know, a big trauma from past experience or they just recently lost someone, um, or it's a breakup, right? There's, there's so many instances, uh, in life where we're going to have an experience that shakes us up and, and that stirs up large emotions in us. And if we don't take the time um, to really allow that to fully uh, resolve through us, then it's going to sit in the background and, and create issues. And so those are the main people that I work with and, and the main ways in which um, my work tends to support uh, you know, their unfolding and helping them to feel more balanced and clear and, uh, and to have a sense of resolve from, from these past experiences. That's a great description. Um, and I also would offer Dan that, you know, from knowing you that and, and knowing, you know, this kind of work as well, that another aspect might be um, some resonance because when, you know, you or I have moved into a particular state of being, then, and then that can be transmitted to the other person who is willing who is who is willing for that so if i am in a balanced state or a flow state or a connected state then it's the other person to begin connecting with that in themselves and that's just through a process that we call resonance and also you know i think that you have the gift of being a compassionate witness um so that when you are listening to another person you're not judging you're not trying to fix anything you're not demanding that they be a certain way you're just listening deeply and allowing that person to be who they are in that moment, which paradoxically <laughs> tends to lead us toward um, resolving the things that are in the way of being who we are. And so I just wanted to offer those things too, because I feel like that is a part of um, of your work and it's a gift that you bring through because of 
who you are and because of the work you've done. Do you agree? Oh, a hundred percent. And, and because of, you know, that we've trained on it together, a, a big part of that work is, is healing presence. Um, and, you know, it's interesting with the resonance piece because it's really easy for sensitive people to feel right. If you're around someone, uh, who's, who's really angry or frustrated or really sad, it's like, you could have your eyes closed and back turned. Like there's, there's a feeling sense of, mm, you know, of where it might even hit you. And for me, it's, it's more kinesthetic, but where it would hit me in the body. Like I know I'm close to someone who's moving through this, you know, type of emotion on the flip side. Um, my goal, and it's the first prayer that I do for every Reiki session, is is to be uh, a conduit, is to be empty uh, and, and void of um, anything that would come up in me that would interfere with what the other person needs. And um, and I think that's a big part of, of being a compassionate witness in, in this uh, this practice of, of healing presence is, um, you know, to be the vessel. And um, it's like I, I tell people for any session, it's not me who's doing the healing, you're doing the healing, that the healer is you. And, and my job is, you know, to, to be the conduit and the vessel for what you need, uh, to come through and, and to unfold in you. And, um, I think that resonance part is, is so important because it's the, the environment that they feel and a sense of safety and security to, drop in and be, you know, vulnerable to receive what they need, but knowing it's, um, it's a safe, protected space, uh, where that vulnerability can be honored and protected is, is such a key element. And that's why there's certain prayers that I do like the Archangel Michael before every session to, to set protection. So there's a, a sense of, um, of, of safety and, um, a sense of protection for this vulnerability that's coming through. Yeah. And vulnerability is such a big part of healing. Um, and that's what makes it challenging, right? For us to walk into that. There's a, we have to walk into the vulnerable places and walk into it in a place, um, that is safe enough where our vulnerability will be respected and honor and met with kindness and also met with wisdom to help us move to you know, move through any misunderstanding or any confusion or any hurts. And um, that's just a really big part of healing. So I'm so glad that you brought the V word, as we call it sometimes, <laughs> into um, <laughs> into uh, our session today. Yeah. What was the saying you had, like uh, vulnerability, like that's where, the, that's where the gold is or that's where the juice is or yeah. something like that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um yeah, and we I just think that um, you know that again we're kind of at the opposites, you know, where that strength and that vulnerability, we have to have the strength to be vulnerable, and I think that's something that perhaps are forgetting and missing sometimes, is that being mm. vulnerable actually requires strength. Um, we can only be vulnerable when we're met with strength from outside of ourselves, and that creates the strength inside of ourselves to meet that vulnerability and allow it to educate us on what it is that we need to understand that we have missed. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the most um, attractive qualities in a man is not the sense of like stoicism, but quite the opposite. Like some, like someone who's so secure in themselves to be able to express, you know, a feminine quality and to express a sense of vulnerability 
and and to be open uh, about oneself and one's experiences. And um, yeah, it requires, like you said, it, it's kind of counterintuitive from like a mainstream thought, but it does require a lot of strength um, and resilience uh, because it, it means being really true to what you feel, uh, even if it's not going to be uh, popular and, um, and and to also be open to what other people are experiencing um, and, and, and to really feel it. And uh, it's kind of the opposite of this sense of uh, you know, kind of furrowing your lip and, and, uh, just kind of trudging through it, which is, um, kind of a lot of what you hear and what you see, uh, in the culture. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Well, thank you so much for all that you shared, Dan. It was good to, um, even for me to get to know you a little bit better and I'm sure for other people to get to know you maybe for the first time. Thank you to everyone for tuning in and listening. Uh, and at this time, we invite you to transition. So closing the eyes, take a deep breath in and out, drawing the awareness back to your physical body. And just imagine yourself moving back into your daily world and bringing with you Anything that you heard or experienced today that was of value. All blessings to you and to those you love. 